Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. We have, I hope, all enjoyed our summer break, whether it was spent doing lateral flow tests or watching the rain. And we're back and raring to go. Now in blazing sunshine, of course, now we're all back at school and work. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor of the TLS. Thea Lenarducci, our usual host, is not back with us yet. So I've enlisted the invaluable help of Michael Keynes, editor at the TLS and man of many hats. Hello, Michael. Hi, Lucy. How are you? Uh, I'm all right, thank you. I would say I'm too warm, but people get mad if you say that because it's it's Britain and we're never too warm. So uh, I'm. Are we, are we not meant to say that? No, no. We're absolutely fine. The temperature here is fine. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. How was uh, how was your summer? Do it. Did, did you read anything? Bit of a leading question. <laughs> um, remarkably little. Oh, I can say though that I, I reread something. I reread. Um, a novel called Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend oh, yeah. Warner for another podcast. What? So um, it was a massive pleasure to do that. Big plug here. I read I read a book to talk about it for another podcast. There are no other and podcasts. It was just an immense, there are no, there's just the TLS podcast. I know officially, yeah. if unofficially, anyone is listening and wants to listen below the radar, as it were, there's another one. And we're talking about that on it. But it was just a pleasure to read it again. I I don't do as much rereading as I would like. And it was just a huge joy to come back to it. It's such a good, witty novel. So I just want to recommend that. What about you? Uh, I'm, it, it's Lolly Willis has reminded me that when we did the, was it the British Library Women Writers series? And there was, and I read a book, the name of which I have brilliantly forgotten. And then along with that, so Lolly Willis was recommended. And I, I enjoyed the one I read, which of course I've forgotten. Mm-hmm. And and thought, oh yes, I'll read Lolly Willows next. Right. Is it about it's about a single does she turn into a witch or something? Is that a spoiler? No, no, I mean that's kind of what the novel is famous for. But actually, it, even knowing that, that kind of helps, I think. Because like I said, having read it before, 
I came back to it and I thought, no, there's much, much more going on. So it is good to know that. That's part of the pleasure of the novel. That's a very important part of the novel. But there's a lot more to it. And it's just it's just so lively and good fun. And um, yeah, it's everything I really admire in her, her writing. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I'm recommending it again. It sounds like you've already had one, somebody or a piece of writing sort of tug your sleeve about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, supporting that, seconding that view. That's a very good, uh, that's a very good recommendation. Uh, since you ask, I've read uh, some science fiction about space pirates, which is pretty good. Fantastic. Some uh, his- historical fiction, which was all right. Um, no space pirates? No space pirates, which is, for me is always a bit of a problem. That is disappointing. And I read a book, uh, I read a book about indexes, which we might talk about later. Uh-huh. <laughs> first, I'm going to tell everyone um, what is coming up on this week's show. Considering Substack, is it a newfangled newsletter starter or built along classic 19th century literary lines? Probably neither, but let's weigh it up and see. And a psychogeographer of London travels much further afield to retrace the steps of his great-grandfather. First, we're going to think a bit about books. We like books, that's pretty much why we're all here. But maybe we don't think very much about how our books have evolved or why. The form is very rarely discussed, just the content. How do we navigate around our books, for instance, to find what we want? By using the index, you might reply. And if we start to wonder how and why the index itself came about, then we have no choice but to turn to the new book by Dennis Duncan. Index, a history of the... And no, I didn't say that wrong. Um, The book is reviewed in the TLS this week, and since Dennis is an esteemed contributor to the TLS, we've invited him on to talk us through alphabets, concordances, ancient search engines, and the like. Dennis, many thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, First of all, I'm going to ask you a a big and rather basic question, I'm afraid. Why why did you want to write about indexes? And it is indexes, isn't it? Not indices, that there have been other... Sort of unfortunate alternative names, haven't they? Well, first of all, yes, I say indexes, and and, uh, and so does Shakespeare in, in Troilus and Cressida. He uses this sort of anglicised form. So I think the argument has been, well, if it's good enough for him, then it should be good enough for us. Um, statisticians and economists use indices. Indexes are what you find at the back of the book. As for how I came to write about it, well, it's funny... Uh, it started off with uh, the French avant-garde. As, as everything does, we find. <laughs> I did my PhD on, on a group called the Ulipo, um, famous for Georges Perec's novel without the letter E. And about 10 years ago, I was teaching at Birkbeck um, after this, and it, it occurred to me that Perec's masterpiece, a novel called Life User's Manual in English, um, is a novel with an index, and that's quite... Unusual, actually, it's got two indexes. Um, and there's another novel by a member of this group called the Ulipo, a novel by Harry Matthews called The Sinking of the Erdrich Stadium that also has an index. And there's another novel by Italo Calvino, that the great sort of Italian writer of the last second half of the 20th century, also a member of the Ulipo, called Mr. Palomar, that has a table of contents. And so I thought, well, I should do something with this. Maybe I'll write an academic article. What is it about the way that this group, the Ulipo, think about narrative that leads them to to sort of break the rule that non-fiction has an index and fiction doesn't. 
as I came to sort of research that, I thought, well, I just need to look up some things about when indexes are in novels, when they aren't. So what's the standard history of the index? And I asked all my colleagues, and nobody knew, and it became obvious that there wasn't one. And then I thought, well, <laughs> that's something I need. That's something we all need. So that was that was the project, really. It, it started from realising a lack. I think often in, in academia, we... Uh, uh, there are very few major gaps left to be filled, it feels sometimes. And, and uh, so I set out to, to rectify that. We were actually, I'm going to ask, talk about fiction um, later, but I was going to, I was going to boringly go um, from the beginning to the end, if that, I'm afraid, if you don't mind. Um, I was going to try and describe your book. My best thought about was that it's a historical romp, which I think is accurate, which kind of, begins more or less with the alphabet, doesn't it? Which the alphabet allows us to list things in alphabetical order, no matter how important or not the subject is. <laughs> I like your word romp, by the way. Um, uh, so, um, yes, that's right. So the, 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 the real innovation of the index, tables of contents now, slightly different, and they have been around since antiquity. There are tables of contents to um, Pliny's natural history, for example. But the index does something eccentric. The index puts concepts not in, uh, not by category, not in the orders that they make sense or where they're found in the world, but the index introduces arbitrariness. Um, the point being that everybody knows the order of the letters of the alphabet, so you know how to look something up in the index, even if you don't know what category the thing you're looking up belongs to, you just, as long as you know your ABC, um, you're looking for Pollock Jackson, you know he's going to be little bit further than halfway along through the index. So the index introduces something universal that we all know, which is the letters of the alphabet, at the expense of having any structure that's intrinsically linked to the work. It's, it's arbitrary instead. Now, the, the letters of the alphabet, or, or the use of the letters of the alphabet for ordering, um, is something that emerges in the Library of Alexandria, something that emerges probably around about uh, 300 BC. It's really interesting that the letters of the alphabet um, had an order before that. We know that uh, school children used knowing the order in order to learn the alphabet, in order to be able to spell, just like we all sing A, B, C, D, you know, to, to, to the tune of, uh, um, uh, what is it? Uh, da, 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 da. I think, isn't it the tune, isn't it the alphabet tune? Michael, what's that tune called? <laughs> I sing it all the time in my head, don't worry. Okay, good. Wh which letter are you on now? <laughs> I'm still on H. I'm just thinking about it. Sorry, long, long silent pause now while we all, I think it's a sort of version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, isn't it? I th actually, we are digressing. But we use, we use the song in order to learn the, the order of the letters of the alphabet, but only to help us spell. Um, the, the idea of using the fact that we all know that order then to help us navigate Big data was an innovation from the Library of Alexandria. Right, yeah, around about the start of the third century BC. Yeah, because you you called the Library of Alexandria ancient Greek big data, it, 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 and and in the sense that that needed that, that need, it was so big, wasn't it? That it that you say in the book, I think it necessitated not knowing it but beginning to use it to order things because there was so much of it. Right. Yeah. When you get uh, um, data of a certain size. Um, it becomes unmanageable. And, and it was the innovation of, of a man called Callimachus. Okay, well, what can we use that we all know that will help us to, to navigate this? Um, so you need an ordering system. It's all, we, we can remember things up to a certain scale, but beyond that, 
um, we're going to need a map. And it's also, that's the distinction, isn't it, which is an important one, the thing about the importance of the subjects, the distinction between a concordance and an index, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they're both invented around about the same time, around about the year 1230. The concordance is, a, is an index that's a word index. So the concordance takes uh, the words of, of a text, in, in, let's say the Bible, which was the, the first concordance, and it just puts them in alphabetical order and tells us where we can find them. So the Bible concordance created in, in Paris in, at the start of the 13th century tells us everywhere we can look to find the word sin or the word fish or the word, you say you're creating a sermon, you're trying to write a sermon, your theme is going to be bread. Give us this day our daily bread and I'm going to jump from that to the feeding of the 5,000. This concordance is going to tell me all of the instances I need to go to to get the exact reference. The subject index is slightly different. So the subject index will tell us the concepts that are in a work, even if they aren't expressed in that exact word. So to give you an example, the story of the prodigal son, the most famous story in the Bible of forgiveness, let's say, um, doesn't contain the word forgiveness, and it doesn't contain the word mercy, and it doesn't contain the word prodigal. So we need the sort of intuitive expert reading of somebody who's an indexer going, how are people going to use this? What are they going to search for? It becomes really important in the case of John Marbeck. So in 1543, uh, the latter part of Henry VIII's reign, the, the religious paranoia there, a man called John Marbeck is picked up in Windsor by the religious authorities who think that he's a member of a Calvinist sect. Marbeck is not an educated person. He's a chorister. He sings at George's Chapel in, in Windsor. But the authorities think that he's a, a um, sort of lowlier member of this sect. He might be able to give them some names. When they search his house, they find that he's been making an index to the Bible. And he's got as far as the letter L. And the authorities think, right, this must be a subject in index, a Calvinist subject index that bigs up certain themes that suppresses others, that's sort of ideologically influenced by some of the higher up, some of the educated, possibly aristocratic members of this sect. So take him to Marshall C. Prison and interrogate him. And he hasn't got much to say. Um, and finally, Marbeck says, listen, all I'm doing is using a concordance to the Latin Bible, which is not illegal. And I'm looking up words in that, triangulating with an English Bible, and then just copying out the locations. I don't need to be a Latinist. I'm not taking instruction from anywhere. And crucially, because this is just a concordance, I'm not doing any mediation. I'm not ideologically influencing this. And the authorities go, we don't believe you. And Marbeck says, well, listen, you know, I've only got up to the letter L. If you bring me a Latin concordance, some quills and some parchment and leave me tonight. Give me some letters for, give me some words from the second half of the alphabet to do, and I'll produce index entries for those in the morning. And he escapes with his life. The authorities have to admit, okay, yeah, you're really just doing a word for word index of the Bible. Just to play devil's advocate, it does occur to me that if he was fiendishly clever, he could say that <laughs> and then just do a concordance <laughs> pretty quickly <laughs> that night and then carry on with his ideological index afterwards. If he was I think I think the other key point here is that they think he's not fiendishly clever. They think he's the opposite okay, of fiendishly yeah. clever. <laughs> um Dennis, as, as you've moved on to the era of sort of movable type in 1543, there's rather a more, I guess, widespread problem, but maybe not quite so dangerous as Marbeck's problem, which is just the, the simple problem of, of page numbers, that all the things that we think of as fixtures of modern books aren't necessarily present 
in every book of the period. Uh, so the index itself is still having to, to adapt and change. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, that's really right. So we have indexes in, in the manuscript era before print. We have indexes for a couple of centuries. Um, but each index really only works for that copy of the book. You and I might have the same book, Michael, but your one might be a big book and it's 200 pages, whereas mine's a little book and it's 400 pages. Same text. But I can't say I think you like what's on page 47 because we're not on the same page, if you like. There's a nice, there's a history book in um, St. John's College Library in Cambridge where somebody has copied in the late 14th century, copied out this entire history of the world. And then at the end, they've copied out the index and they just don't know how indexes work. It's a scribe called John Lutton who signed his name um, and he's copied out the locators, the, the page numbers in the index, and then it doesn't work. It's like when you go to a website and, and, and the links all say 404 page not found. It's, it's an index full of broken links because this poor scribe basically didn't know what he was doing and just copied things out. Now, with print, as you say, Michael, um, then as long as we all have a, a copy of the same edition, it comes from the same print run, then your page looks like my page. I can say you're going to love what's on page 66 here and know that, that that's going to work. So suddenly the, the index can become... Um, I, I, I suppose, sort of turbocharged. Every book can have an index. You don't need the book, to, the Bible, to be divided up into chapter and verse. You can have any old book and then just do an index that's based on page numbers, which are not a feature of the text. Page numbers don't tell you anything about what's happening on that page. They're a feature of the material book itself. So suddenly, by the start of the 16th century, you can find indexes in all sorts of books, from herbals and cookery books to... Um, in Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, um, there's a moment where a knight has been given a spell book and suddenly he needs to use it. And it says he knew where to turn to because he looked it up in the index. So even <laughs> fictional spell books by 1516 come with, with a handy index at the back. I mean, and it's, it seems that with that with that rise in popularity, that standardization of the index, maybe you also get what what's I had lazily assumed was a very modern anxiety, but, but clearly isn't, which is that you're kind of cheating, that if you're using the index, you're you're skimming, you're not using your memory. And it turns out that that anxiety is actually long established. Gosh, that's exactly right. So, so nowadays we sort of find it expressed. Nicholas Carr expresses it best, I think, when, when he writes an essay called Is Google Making Us Stupid? <laughs> this idea that this is the age of distraction. Nobody reads properly anymore. But I really take issue with that. I think um, it sort of fundamentally misunderstands what reading is. Reading is sort of an umbrella term for a host of activities. When you read a novel, you're doing something different from when you read a, a newspaper or a tweet or a restaurant menu or a road sign. Um, and each of these have their own sort of micro histories. Each of these modes of attention that we call reading um, have evolved um, because of the sort of leisure context or the technological context in which they sort of arose. But we can find that anxiety. Nobody reads properly anymore as far back as we want to go when we look at the history of the index. Um, Alexander Pope uh, writes in the, in the 1530s, index learning, this is a very pejorative term, index learning turns no student pale. And the idea there is, well, students should be pale. They should be burning the candle at both ends, not getting any daylight. But these cheap index learning turns no student pale. And then we go back further. If you go back to the 1530s, Erasmus writes a book, whole book in the form of a, a list, um, and then in the preface, he says, I had to do it this way because these days people only read the index. 
it's a really sort of nifty piece of sort of humble brag snark there. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that nobody reads properly idea has, has been sort of ever present, and you, you can trace it back to Plato's Phaedrus, if you like. Plato, no, Socrates, sort of grumbling at Phaedrus that writings come along, nobody's going to pay attention to each other anymore because you always think I can just I can do it later. I can come back to that idea and pay it some attention later. Once we do have the index firmly established, um, it's used not just as a tool for researchers or students who aren't necessarily pale enough um, with their hard work, but uh, as an extraordinary way of, there's lots of things it turns out that people can do with it. They exact revenge, they assert their personality, they skew the focus of the book itself. Yeah, that's right. I, I was really grateful, Lucy, when you when you described the history of the index as a romp, because what <laughs> what I've enjoyed most about it, I think, are all these sort of gnarly stories about snark and uh, um, people attacking each other. When we use an index, a bit like when we use Google, we, we have to assume that it's it's being done in good faith, that, that its mediation is, is not going to radically skew um, the things that we want to find or the intention of, of the thing that we are finding. There's, there's a tweet by Donald Trump in 2019, where he says, Google is rigged, capital letters, part of the fake news media. The idea there being that, that if you use Google, it's not going to give you a, a sort of true search. And I'm skeptical about that, but certainly that there are instances of indexes going back to the start of the 18th century. This seems to be the moment where people realize that you can publish sort of counter indexes or snarky indexes that undermine your political rivals. There's an example from 1705. There's, there's a politician, Tory MP called William Bromley, who's running for Speaker of the House of Commons in October 1705. About 12 or 13 years earlier, when he was a young man, Bromley did the grand tour of France and Italy, and he wrote it up and published a, a book of his uh, grand tour. Now, October 1705, three days before the election, that book reappears in a second edition, published by Bromley's rival, Robert Harley, the, the incumbent speaker. And the only difference between the first and the second edition is the new edition has an index. And the index points to all of the moments where Bromley looks stupid or juvenile or banal or uses bad grammar or is a little bit too sympathetic to the Pope or to foreigners. And it's it, basically it's a character assassination in the form of, of uh, an index. And Bromley loses the election. He's absolutely convinced, A, that it was Harley behind the index and B, it was the index that cost him the election. And and this sort of sparks off a, a minor spate of, of Tories and Whigs indexing each other's work. Doing exactly it's such this. a good weapon, indexes at dawn. Isn't it good? Yes, we should we should bring that back. <laughs> um, and and also just finally, sorry, we could talk about this for hours, but you have in your in your book, I've actually only got the proof, which you put a, you've put a joke index in the proof which is very much um appreciated but in the in the bound copy you have two indexes don't you one by a real person and one by a piece of software tell us which is the best one i thought that i wanted to demonstrate firstly the state of the art because because computers are coming for all of our jobs you know not just not just indexes eventually but but also you know taxi drivers surgeons um the the medium term looks looks uh hairy uh, for, for, for many professions, but I wanted to show how the, the state of the art for AI indexing software at the moment is, is not as good as a good human indexer. So we have an index by a computer, which is interesting, um, but it's also quite often silly. Um, 
And then we have an index, uh, an index by a lady called Paula Clark Bain, who was the secretary of the Society of Indexes, um, and who also sets cryptic crosswords. Um, and so what we find in Paula's index is that it's, well, A, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant navigational tool for the book, really thinks about how you want to use it. But also, I, I think the book is, like you say, a bit of a romp. And so Paula has put so much of her own humour, her own sort of cryptic way of thinking about things. It's full of anagrams and wild goose chases and jokes, um, something I suppose that the AI might never be able to, to, to replicate. But the, the future for the, the index will be the artisanal index like this, that it is stamped with the personality of the person who's producing it. One of those arguments that I've been talking about so far is the way that the subject index is a mediation, that there's somebody coming to it, an expert reader thinking about who's going to read this and how are they going to read it. And in Paula's index to the book, you really see that, that mediation. There's really a personality um, producing this masterpiece of an index, but also something that looks a bit like Paula. Brilliant. So uh, when everyone rushes out to buy your book, the first thing they should do is go just turn to the index, which is not what we always say, is it? <laughs> Dennis Duncan, many thanks for talking to us today. Phew. OK, well, thank you so much for having me. Still to come on the show, what's all the fuss about Substack? And a psychogeographer goes out of London and into the Peruvian jungle in his ancestors' footsteps. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. back to the TLS podcast. After hanging out with an ancient literary invention, we thought we'd jump forward a thousand or so years and take a minute to have a look at what might be a possible future of publishing, i.e. Substack, prompted by the news this week that they've signed up Salman Rushdie, which they have, sort of, and in another vein, quite a few very successful and acclaimed Marvel and DC writers. Um, so, Michael, what, what 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 can we say about Substack? What is it? I'll give you the easy question. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Let's start with that. Well, in a nutshell, it's a platform for publishing newsletters, and you can make those newsletters free, or you can charge people for them, and it's pretty flexible. And I've I've had a look around. I think it's a very neat, clever uh, sort of platform as these things go, and it's been around for a few years now. But I think as it's got bigger. And it really is is growing, I think, um, becoming quite important. It's also slightly changing what it does. So like pre-existing platforms, Medium and whatever, you know, it, it did exist as a kind of free-for-all and a very open market, but it's become much more proactive. I think the strategy has changed over the past year. At least that's what I've read. And they're signing up these quite well-known writers. And it's becoming maybe a bit more like a kind of vast publishing house, which has some people who take it on voluntarily. And I've read this great one, for example, by Adam Smith, an Oxford professor who writes about bibliographical matters, the sort of thing that Dennis Duncan would know all about. Um, and other things are, for example, there's one I actually pay for, uh, which is about a kind of very, very uh, coruscating uh, left-wing take on right-wing journalism. And I remember reading it for free. It's by this guy called Mick Wright. And I really enjoyed it. I thought, I'd love that. I'm going to pay and sign up for it. And now it pops into my inbox all the time. And I sort of feel slightly sick, like when you like when you read too much private eye, <laughs> like it's too much bile. Right. <laughs> so I'm now not sure about it. But the idea is that as a writer, you can actually turn, you know, quite a good kind of, I don't know, side hustle kind of profit from it. I mean, it, it, it's funny because when you when, when we describe it and you say it's a newsletter platform, I mean, it's just, it's, that's really old fashioned in a way. It's like it's like, a, you know, it's like weblogs, isn't it? It's a really old fashioned idea, but it has got this idea that this expectation that you will pay for the work and also that that basically the writer gets about I think they get about 90% of it don't they yeah I mean my my sort of slight theory is that uh, there's a lot of things that people scoff at from you know old style websites and what have you and the technology just the design might look naff but actually the essence like you just said a newsletter so simple it's like the idea that people actually open email and you get a better hit rate people opening emails and clicking through you know if i send you a link and it's something i know you're interested in maybe you'll you know you'll click on that link and the newsletter maybe works a bit like that it turns up in your inbox and you've signed up for it you want to 
kind of read it. So that does seem like an old idea, doesn't it? Yeah. But it does seem like there's a bit of pushback against Substack, wouldn't you say, that people are recognising cons as well as pros? Yeah, very much so. And I think, I mean, I would say that probably we, we will be coming at this from a particular angle because one of the things that jumped out at me, one of the th- things that people like about it is freedom. And we go, oh, yeah, good, that's good, freedom's good. <laughs> but it also means, it often means a lack of editors because because sometimes the writers say well I didn't want to be you know shackled by editors like whether it was newspaper editors or whoever telling me what to say and you go well of course express yourself but then if you don't have any editors I mean we as editors I think are probably you know going to feel a particular way about this first of all there's nobody editing you so <laughs> so it might not be as, as as good as it could be and um, and sometimes that leads to free speech that people don't like. So there's some people leaving because there have been people posting what they see as, uh, particularly recently, I think, transphobic stuff. You know, if you don't have an editor, then there's, then then the uh, the gloves are off. And so that so there is a there is a there are two sides to it. Put it that way. Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's going to be a big insoluble problem, isn't it? Is that lots lots of websites have this issue is that are they just hosting things and they stand back and they say we're washing our hands this is nothing to do with us or do you because you have guidelines you're actually you are shepherding people you are trying to control them a little bit so to what extent do you do that do you you know obviously we know this from twitter and trump being kicked off all all kinds of different scenarios Mm. and i think that's just going to be with us for a while while people try and work out what to do about that but a more i guess a more interesting critical issue as well is that Substack signing up, say, a Salman Rushdie to write, um, write to write a novel and you know and publish it in an episodic way. Again, that's not that's not his idea. It's going to be very interesting to see how that goes. I wonder if one thing that's missing from that is that we've, it's been sold to us kind of the old idea of a serialized um, novel made new. You know that you get to do this the way nineteenth-century novelists published books in instalments, and they were the they were the talk of the town. You're know, the sensation. But what that misses is context. I think is that you you bought, say, Household Words or the Cornhill magazine, but it came with a whole bunch of other stuff. And that may be the future for Substack too. Is you're increasingly going to see writers bundled together as a way of selling people a good deal. So it may actually, ironically, become more like. A traditional media publication yes but that's just a possible scenario well and it's and, and yeah it's this thing about this kind of dickensian episodic narrative but as you say it was a very different very different set of circumstances when that happened the first time but also i was he salman Rushdie. i read i read a piece in the new republic today saying he won't be publishing his next book on substack He's taken an advance from the company to fool around with quotes whatever comes into his head <laughs> which will apparently include a serialised novella. And he's also writing a blog or newsletter. So he's doing the Substack thing mm. and, and then there might be something else. So it's not, it's been slightly spun as Substack have taken over the publishing industry, but it's it's actually right, sure, it's sure. not quite that, is it? That's an interesting piece of sensationalism because there is a kind of truth to that. But also when I hear Salman Rushdie is going to publish whatever comes to his head, I <laughs> probably unsubscribe, unsubscribe now and save you the trouble. Well, thanks, Substack. Shall we just say that, that, I mean, as I said before, I just think that because um, we're thinking about it, we're, we're broadly in favour of editors, but then we would say that, wouldn't we? Yeah, and also, I, I don't want to say it. I, you know, like I said, I've signed up for one. I think it's quite an interesting, good idea, but it's still very much at that um, watch this space stage of development, isn't it?
Now, if you know the name Ian Sinclair and you associate that name with any particular place, that place is likely to be London, the city of which Sinclair has written so often, uh, one way or another, in books such as Ghost Milk, Hackney, That Rose Red Empire, The Last London, London Orbital, and so on. But Sinclair has often roamed further afield, and his latest book, called The Gold Machine, takes him to South America, to Peru, to be precise, in the footsteps of his great-grandfather, Arthur Sinclair, who made a fascinating and, to us, troubling expedition to the upper Amazon region in 1891. The Gold Machine is reviewed in this week's TLS by the writer and translator Miranda France, who joins us now on our own expedition into the heart of Sinclair land. Miranda, hello, and thank you very much for joining us. Hello, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Perhaps we should begin with the ancestor, with Arthur Sinclair, not Ian. Um, Miranda, who was he and what did he get up to in the Upper Amazon? Well, he was the great-grandfather of Ian Sinclair and he was born into a farming family in the Highlands. Um, I think the family had been moved as part of the clearances and I think it wasn't a well-to-do family. But very early on, he became interested in botany. He was growing his own vegetables and he was particularly interested in potatoes. And, and as quite a young lad, he realised that his potatoes weren't thriving because they had blight. And um, it may have been partly this interest in potatoes that made him curious about the wider world and uh, more exotic uh, climates. So when he was about, well, with his first wage packet, um, Ian Sinclair says, I think maybe when he was about 16, he spent his first wage packet on a, a book of botany and he walked to Aberdeen from his village to buy it. And that's where Ian Sinclair makes the first of many connections, which is to see a parallel with the poet John Clare, who also walked to, to buy, uh, I think, a book by James Thompson, but would also walk from his village. And quite soon after that, uh, he met a landowner with um, properties in Ceylon, um, Sri Lanka now, who wondered if he would be able to um, advise on the planting of rhododendrons. And um, Arthur Sinclair thought that he could do that. So he went off to Ceylon, I think in his mid twenties, maybe 25, 26, and found a sort of paradise, a, a botanist paradise, um, an island of extraordinary resources and um, natural, wealth and absolutely loved it and was there for 10 years um, I think as a sort of soil expert and plant expert working for, for various different individuals and maybe government bodies and I think he then came back to Scotland almost as a sort of early retirement but then was taken off again to Tasmania where he had a very different experience and he was uh, his eyes were open to the way that Places could be terribly exploited and neglected by landowners buying up, you know, large tracts of land and then just sitting on them in the, in the hope that they might at some point get to sell them back to the government. So he saw a very different side of things there. And, the, and these two, Ian Sinclair sets up these two different experiences as being very much, very much formative in what later happened on his expedition to Peru. And he, he wrote about all this quite, quite copiously, didn't he? Arthur, I mean, not Ian. Uh, yes, I think he did because he was writing for newspapers, I think um, back in Aberdeen and also in Colombo. And I think he also wrote diaries. 
he published several books, I think both memoir and there's a novel in there somewhere, I think. Um, so yes, he was, he was writing a lot and he was very, very interesting writer, um, very um, lively, you know, good, good at explaining, explaining what he saw and why he was so interested in it. That must have helped with the, with the Ian Sinclair book if, if Arthur was such a good writer because then he can quote bits and set him up against it and that kind of thing. He wasn't just someone kind of, you know, boringly recounting his travels. Absolutely. I think it must have helped him enormously. And I know that he has written about Arthur Sinclair before and that he's always been very aware of wanting to... Um, to follow in his footsteps to Peru. So this has been something that's obviously been with him for a long time. And, and it is wonderful that he's such a good writer because speaking as somebody who's often taught creative writing courses, you know, when somebody turns up with their ancestor's diary or their ancestor's journal from somewhere, often, you know, often your heart sinks a little bit because it may not be all, <laughs> all that great. But in this case, really, really, it's really good stuff. And he is actually, talking over his quandaries to some degree, you know, saying, oh, this is all great. Wouldn't it be fantastic to get thousands of indentured workers in here, um, <laughs> you know, making lots of money for the investors back in London, but at the same time thinking, oh, that could be a terrible mistake and seeing how, how badly that can go. So, I mean, just to be clear, I think we touched on his earlier sort of experiences, but it's obviously both Arthur and his great-grandson Ian end up in Peru. Can you tell us a bit more about the travels? When, when and why does Ian go to Peru and what's, what, was, what was Arthur doing there? Well, so Arthur went, um, I think he was 59 and I'm now going to forget the year, but I think it's 1891. Um, and he went to survey land which had been acquired um, by the Peruvian Corporation of London, which was really set up to um, handle bonds that, or debt that had not been repaid by Peru um, to investors who, who, had, um, who, who had bought bonds to, to support the building of railways mostly. Uh, so the Peruvian corporation was um, not only involved with um, railway building, but also guano, um, exportation and, and various other Endeavors, and so they had they had this land, and they wanted um, Arthur Sinclair to go and survey it and see how how good it would be for coffee plantations. And Ian uh, goes to reprise that um, that expedition, and also very much to, to a feeling of sort of atoning for for crimes done, or wanting wanting to provide some kind of restitution to the people there because the creation of the coffee plantations had been so devastating for, for this area um, of the rainforest, um, which is where the Ashaninka people, I think I've said that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's their, that, that their communities there around the Perine River. So he, he went in order to meet them. He also went with his daughter um, and a filmmaker. So there's a, there's a sort of a, very much a family connection there. So they're a little kind of crew. And are they going with exactly the same purpose in, in mind? Are they there for other reasons? Are they just tagging along? Well, his daughter, Farn, is going to make a podcast and the filmmaker is going to make a film. But I'm not quite sure how much. I think the film is sort of tangential. It's not meant to be a, a documentary about um, Ian Sinclair's journey. 
it's something slightly different. Well, um, one of the things I really love about your room, Miranda, is, is both, you know, a vivid sense you give us of Sinclair in this little company of his own, but also how he's um, in the company of, or at least he, his experiences can be compared with those of other literary types who got there before him, you know, who went to Peru again for their own reasons. And they're quite a strange and impressive crowd, aren't they? I mean, they do, just thinking about them does shed its own light on the idea of traveling and the idea of why these different people go to South America. Can you tell us a bit about them and who goes and are they, are they a significant part of the book as well? Uh, well, yes, I mean, he, he makes all kinds of literary illusions and they're not always to people who've been in Peru. For example, he, he makes a connection with the poet um, Arthur Rambo, who, who was in, um, uh, went to Africa, I think, rather than Latin America. Um, and um, Joseph Conrad, and he also mentions Roger Casement, the, the diplomat who was tried um, and executed for, uh, for treason, um, who had been in Peru writing about the, the, the terrible conditions on rubber plantations. So he, um, he brings in a lot of people, also, also William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg. What do, what do they get up to <laughs> out there? Well, I, um, they went, they experimented with ayahuasca, didn't they? Which is this sort of concoction that's made by, um, under the, the direction of shamans, um, Ashaninka shamans, um, and is a, is a sort of hallucinogenic that famously, I don't know, did Sting take it? I mean, it's, actually, when we get in trouble legally, no, I don't, I don't suppose he did. I mean, I mean, who, who hasn't taken it, Miranda? Who hasn't taken it? I felt it? rather square because I think I read somewhere that about 10,000 people a year uh, travel to Peru to take it. So I haven't, I haven't done that, but um, so I can't, I can't um, attest to the, to the experience, but anyway, um, so yes, he certainly talks about that. And um yeah, there's a feeling. There's a feeling of of a, of a lot of a lot of people arriving. I mean, you might say invading almost because it makes you very aware of the fact that some people can travel to a part of the world, but the people who are there can't. You know, they don't have that same freedom to travel elsewhere. Yes, they're kind of travelled to and expected to welcome yes. people and give them this this authentic Peruvian experience, aren't they? Whatever these travellers are there for. Yes. Yes. There's an imbalance. It was interesting as well. I thought that you said that they they didn't have um, any uh, anyone who could speak any of the language, so they're always always they're dependent on translators and guides and things like that, which which probably would colour the experience a bit. Well, that's how it felt to me, and I'm going to sound a bit um, up myself, you know, because I speak Spanish and I, um, which of course Spanish is not is not the mother tongue of a lot of indigenous people in Latin America, but it is often spoken by indigenous people. And, and when I've travelled in um, Bolivia, Ecuador, various other places, I have been lucky enough to be able to speak directly to the people that I was staying with. But of course, you know that is a rather <laughs> pleased with my pleased with myself. <laughs> well. I'm not sure about that. It sounds like you're, you're doing, it changes your experience completely when you go to a country and you don't really understand what's going on at all. Isn't, isn't that fair? I just felt in a way that they were slightly at the mercy of this very energetic um, guide they have called Lucha, who, who, do, who obviously does speak Spanish and, and maybe other language. I mean, he is Peruvian. And um, they're rather at his, at his mercy because what he's really interested in is um, adventure tourism. So he's always, Ian Sinclair is quite amusing about him regularly saying, come on, vamos, you know, 
trying to get them off to the next exciting <laughs> jungle adventure when what they really want to do is um, something a bit more subtle. You know, they don't, they don't want to go on, um, I don't know, ride the rapids or whatever. They want to talk to the people who are descended from, from the communities that they feel their, their ancestor um, took a part in. Know, damaging. It sounds as well. I mean, this is actually all grist to Ian Sinclair's meal, isn't it? Because he's gone on journey. You mentioned John Clare, and I know there's that journey that he, he traced Clare's footsteps, and he likes having traveling companions, but that, that, that people have a different kind of program, that he might be there for some kind of reparation, and that his guide assumes he's there to just have a good time, basically, and see the sights, you know bang one after another <laughs> I mean that's all good Sinclairian material isn't it yes absolutely and um at the beginning of the book um which is actually when from the end of the journey so he he is um st- he's been staying overnight in um uh one of these communities and um somebody says about him presumably this is translated for him but but somebody is uh, is overheard to say has the old man come looking for gold speaking about him <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and he obviously, he obviously thinks, well, perhaps in a sense, you know, he he would like to think that he's not a gold, motivated by gold lust, but in a sense he has mm-hmm. gold because he's wanting to get a book out of it. So there is a sort of mm-hmm. thing yeah. um, to be had there, which, which of course any of us who go to write about somebody else are also... Um, experiencing the same the same conundrum the same conflict of interests and do i uh, i get the impression that does he, he does he write about peru i wonder if it's in a similar way that he writes about london he's got this very very as you say you've already mentioned lots of names this very associative and elusive and kind of dense um sort of going around in circles but that sounds pejorative but it's not supposed to be um does he write the same way about Perot? It, it was funny you say in your piece as well that at some point he, he says, "Oh, white chapels like the jungle," and this bit, you know, this is this reminds me of Hackney. He's taking it with him as well, isn't he? Yes, <laughs> you can take the boy out of white chapel. <laughs> exactly, he can never quite leave it behind. And yes, he does have this very dense style. I mean, one sentence I've got here um, reads. When Arthur Sinclair, who was almost certainly unaware that he shared a Christian name with the renegade poet Rambo, and whose writing was a sidebar to his travelling and not the imperative that propelled flight from home, came to publish, five years before his death, the story of his life and times as told by himself. He got the whole matter done in 34 brisk pages. So that's quite... Yes. (laughs) So quite a lot of sentences are are dense and go in various different directions. And he has noted um, in himself what he calls um, a neurotic tendency to digress. But of course, that's all part of of what makes it a pleasurable read and what makes it a book by Ian Sinclair and not a book by somebody else. Yeah, sure. It sounds like on the one hand, uh, I mean, from from your review, Miranda, that the publisher hasn't spared his blushes by correcting some schoolboy errors about South America, but... For people who are interested in Sinclair himself and for people who are interested in these general questions of, of cultural appropriation and appropriation in the material way, The Gold Machine's very much worth reading. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a great book. I enjoyed it very much. And there's just so much in it. Um, it's absolutely uh, 
I mean, it's like the jungle itself, really. It's just absolutely full of full of uh, colour and noise and, and and all sorts of different things going on. Yeah, you're, you're tempting to make me to say it's, it's very rich, but that immediately <laughs> makes us kind of complicit in the exploitations. <laughs> Awful feeling. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I had a friend, when I lived in Madrid, I had a friend called Rodolfo who was from Peru and dreamed of making his fortune from exporting guano. And I used to think this was a bit of a silly kind of rather colourful... <laughs> colourful idea but I now realise that huge amounts of money are to be made from exporting one is so I'm wondering if I should look this friend up again and see what's happened to him. <laughs> that would that would come full circle wouldn't it with Arthur Sinclair because isn't that isn't that because it's very is it's very good fertiliser isn't it? It enriches yes. the soil and all yes. of that that's and then you then if you've got your soil right then you can grow anything you want. Yes absolutely. Um, we could now talk about gardening for an hour, but sadly, <laughs> <laughs> we we better stop there. So, thank you very much indeed, Miranda, for for joining us. We must stop there. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Dennis Duncan and Miranda France. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Michael and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.